Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me today is our Chief Science Officer, Dr. Brandon Roberts. Brandon, welcome to a Q&A, man. I'm excited to have you back on. It's been a minute. Yeah, yeah, it's not excited to be here, man. Got some good questions today. Yeah. So what we wanted to do today uh, is to switch it up a little bit. Uh, you guys love the Q&As, and I know that because they always get the most downloads out of anything, um, which is always funny to be because I always get excited about one topic or one guest, and I think this is going to crush, and then it's like the Q&As. So um, what I wanted to do is I've been kind of saving topics or questions that I've been getting from you guys over time, uh, waiting for this episode because I knew they would be best suited for somebody who actually has conducted research and knows how to read research better than I do uh, to come on and talk about them with me. So the things I have talked about, um, some I have answered in my own opinions, uh, some I haven't at all, but I think it would be, it's going to be a really good discussion between Brandon and I. Uh, so we're just going to kind of jump in. We got five main questions today. And the first one is, uh, and I'm going to let you lead the answers on everyone, uh, every one of them. And I'm just going to kind of bounce some thought processes back at you. Uh, but the first one is about periodization for hypertrophy. And we've actually covered this in a research review, I believe, or if it was just a topic podcast in general. Um, but it's something that I know uh, a lot of the people who do research reviews have been talking about. I think like Mass has covered this multiple times. Um, I've been extremely intrigued by it simply because it's like, there's just no definitive answer, it seems like. And so I'm constantly listening to all these different people's opinions. And then you kind of go into the strength world and you hear people who are leaning much more on anecdote. And I don't say that in a negative way because they're extremely smart strength coaches, but you hear from their opinion to the research opinion. And it's, and it's really cool kind of hearing all these point of views. Um, but there's been more, uh, I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, more focused hypertrophy periodization research, because for a long time, it seemed like it was just, periodization research on strength and then they looked at hypertrophy outcomes you know which is kind of like as a as a byproduct we noticed this but it wasn't like periodized for hypertrophy which has got to have some kind of influence on it on the results you see so uh, I guess really man like what are your updated thoughts or opinions um, like is there any new research that has kind of piqued your interest with it or changed how you thought about it and like ultimately I want to like boil the question down to like what you think like what your gut tells you is the right way to to approach it. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're, you're correct in stating that like periodization is a strength sport thing. Like back in the 80s, it's always been about how do we get our athletes stronger? Um, how do we get them to peak right for their competitions? How do we you know, make them better athletes? And the best measurement of athleticism for a lot of these, these studies is bench press, squat, deadlift, right? Um, those also happen to be the things that powerlifters love. Right. So then you have this like field of research propelling this other field of like sport um, that's not directly related, but it's kind of related. Um, so then, like you also mentioned, the hypertrophy stuff is kind of a byproduct. It's like they would do, you know, DEXA or they might do ultrasound occasionally, or they might do like in the very beginning, they did like circumference measures. Um, and so as the research evolved, what we've kind of learned is periodization is manipulating reps, right? That's the fundamental is reps and sets. Um, and we know that lower reps and, you know, moderate to high sets promote strength. Um, but 
what we found in the past probably like five or six years is that rep ranges don't really matter for hypertrophy in terms of like growing muscle. Now, in terms of like consistency, they do matter because three sets of 10 is much easier than 10 sets of three, right? And so those are the traditional Schoenfeld studies. And Stu Phillips put out a study that was like three sets of 20 versus three sets of like five or the equivalent volume match stuff. And so that kind of, that literature kind of tells us, hey, reps don't matter. It seems to be about volume in periodization. If we're paying attention to volume, we should be okay, kind of no matter what we do. Um, but again, there's not a ton of research on should we periodize for hypertrophy? It's not going to hurt you. It will probably, based on the literature, help a little bit. Um, but if you were to say, should I do undulated, right? So you do sets of 15, sets of eight, and sets of six or something like that in the week versus a double progression method, right? Where you're just adding reps or adding weight or both, ideally keeping the, the, the kind of rep ranges the same. So you're 12 to 15 and then you add weight and then you go back to 12. Um, so there's not been a lot of studies with those two comparisons. And I think there's one um, and it didn't find much of a difference, right? Um, so you have to kind of pull in the, the short term of the study, maybe six to 12 weeks. Um, and how you like to do things. But I, I don't think there's a magic periodization for hypertrophy, at least not right now. Like it might exist, but we don't know about it yet. One thing I would, I guess it's a question, but like at what point does programming become periodization? You know, because I think that a lot of these things, it seems like every time I dive into this topic, I kind of find that periodization might not matter as much as programming does, right? Because even like there's a lot of literature that shows it's really even like daily undulated people hear that. And Mike Zordos has been calling it daily undulated programming a lot as well. Instead of periodization, he's the person that invented it. And that would be uh, like classic styles, like three different rep ranges, right? Like you said, like we, I mean, the powerlifter style, we have speed, strength, and hypertrophy for a bodybuilder. That might just be like strength and hypertrophy, let's say. Right. So, but it's still kind of undulated, I guess, cause it's just two different rep ranges. But then I think about like, okay, there's, you know, maybe we do want to use a double progression method, but we also want to use uh, a uh, like a linear progression with the compound lifts on a daily undulated style, right? So you can kind of combine all these things. And then it's like, well, now I'm not even periodizing in one way. I'm doing all these different things. I'm just programming because it's on a short period of time. And that's kind of what I started thinking of is like, okay, well, programming is based on a daily or weekly basis. Periodization to me is like more long-term, so if we're focusing on the short term and we never change those things outside of the short term, is it even periodization? Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's like, I think it has, the focus has shifted from periodization to like you said, programming, because you can do lots of different things in a program and it can be the best for like you, right? Um, so I think the conversation has shifted a lot with the, the recent research at least. And I think that's because of the hypertrophy aspect. Like more people are interested in growing muscle versus like peaking for a season. You look at the strength coaches, they're still doing the same thing they've been doing for like 20 years, mm -hmm. you know, a few changes, but for the most part, um, it's the same. Now for again, hypertrophy, what I like to do is I'd like to take my big three lifts and I like to do a linear periodization, right? It's easy to track. Makes me feel good. It's just smooth. 
I just feel like that. But for my um, like accessory work or my, you know, back, my chest, my things like that, I'll do two different rep ranges. So I'll do like a low, like a, probably like an eight to 10 and then a high, like a 15 to 20. And I hate counting to 20, but um, what that does is it kind of attacks different systems, right? Because the higher rep range, um, the more mitochondrial aspect you have going, the lower the strength. And you need both because if you can't lift the weight, right, that, that, that's not good. Um, so you need that neural strength to come in and then you kind of build it up with the upper up rate, with the upper rep ranges on the, uh, kind of volume side. That's like something, uh, I, and I agree. I, I, I typically like to do the same thing. And if we, I mean, if, not to, you know, this is kind of besides the point of periodization, but I mean, it's not, if we look at bros who are just super jacked, I mean, even like, I'm going to throw out Doug Miller cause he's just, he's a great example. And anybody listening who knows Doug Miller I don't think you should follow what he does, not because he, there's no value there, but because he's clearly genetically gifted and he works his ass off and he's been training a long time. So not that he doesn't earn it, but like he trains like a bro. So he does a lot of the things that science says is like unoptimal, but he's literally the most jacked natural athlete in the world of all time, literally. So there's obviously a genetic component, but uh, my point is, is like, that's a classic example of somebody who doesn't really change anything and just does what they feel is best from a bodybuilding perspective. And they just continually make gains. Um, and there's a lot of people who actually do similar things like that and they don't change it throughout the year. And I think most of the people who have a lot of success in bodybuilding actually probably are that way. They don't change it throughout the year, but they change it session to session or throughout the week. They lift heavy. They also lift high reps. They do it all, but it's all within a week rather than like a block periodization where like where we're following this for four to six weeks and this for four to six weeks. But to to that point, um, I don't know if you've read it yet. Uh, probably not because only because of what all you have to read just for your job. Uh, but Brad Schoenfeld's newest book, I think it is his newest one, The Max Muscle 2.0, I think, or something like that. Um, it's a really good book for anybody listening who wants like a scientific approach to hypertrophy but doesn't want to open a textbook. Um, it's good. It's, it's uh, less dry than like his other textbook style one, scientific development of uh, muscle hypertrophy, which is also really good. But um, in that he does a block periodization and there is like a a strength block and then there's a high volume block and then there's a a metabolite block. He calls it a metabolic block and everything is in the like 20 plus rep range. So that's somebody who, who took what you just said, but put it into blocks. I personally wouldn't want to do that because like you said, doing only high, high rep, like 20 rep stuff for a full block. Like I just, I couldn't stomach it. I just don't want to do it. Like, it just doesn't sound appealing at all. And I want to enjoy the gym. Uh, but doing like one set or like one exercise of really high reps per session, like I can get with that. Like, that's cool. Um, but I guess, I guess what I'm pointing out is, is like most of the time it seems like whether you, there's no research to prove that that system of doing it versus yours is better at the moment. Right. It's just like, we just kind of have to be able to hit these different spectrums of rep ranges. Yeah. And I think that's like the, We'll call that the, the safest approach because if there is a benefit, you're gonna get it. Mm. Versus if you if you only work in the low rep ranges or you only work in the high, like that spread, that mix is probably just better overall. Um, the other thing to, to kind of think about nowadays is periodization of volume, right? So where you have an overreaching block, which is slightly different than your traditional periodization, but now let's say, hey, instead of 12 sets for arms, 
per week. I'm going to jump to 18, but I know I can only do that for like six weeks before I start getting like weird aches and pains. So I'm going to do a, a volume block and then come back down to 12 and then maybe alternate another muscle in. Um, so that's something that I've started to play with because as more and more studies come out, like the upper level of sets per week in volume is like the range is 12 to 24. You could be anywhere in that range. You could, if you're getting gains at 12, great. If you're not, well, maybe you have to go to 16 or 18 or something like that. Or maybe you have to do 24 sets to really see a difference in the long term for someone who's kind of highly trained. Um, and that's where the personalized programming comes in, knowing yourself, your coach, knowing you, you knowing your body, how much you can handle. Um, but I think that's like the next steps in periodization is not necessarily sets and reps, but just sets and volume. I would agree. I think that, uh, one of the things that comes into play with that is just overall experience too, because, and I, I mean that from a programming, like a logistic perspective, because so I, I just finished a photo shoot. Now I'm like, we're increasing calories and I'm kind of planning out like, okay, how do I want to, I'm going to be able to increase volume a little bit now that like I'm not in a deficit and I'll be able to start, you know, hopefully putting on some muscle. And I kind of had to look at it from the lens of like, what one or two body parts do I want or need to bring up most? Because like, I'm already doing a good amount of volume. Like I, I cut down a little bit, but like logistically speaking, I'm not going to spend any more time in the gym than I already am. So I already trained five days a week. So I was like, okay, I can bump it up to six because I'm at the gym six days a week anyway. But I'm like looking at my program. I'm like, well, if I, if I did everything 20 sets per week, which would like max out my threshold, I would say, if I'm actually training hard. Uh, and that's another part of this, right? Like how hard are you actually training? Because I see a lot of people that do super high volumes, but then you watch their training and it's like, yeah, but you're not really training that hard. And I think that's why these people are like, it's not volume, it's intensity. And it's like, well, I mean, it could be either. It's just that you're choosing intensity. So if you did more volume, of course you wouldn't last because it would just be too much fatigue versus the person who's doing high volume, low intensity. I think it just balances out. So like whatever you're best with. Um, but point being is I was like, man, I'll be at the gym for three hours a day. Like there's no way. I can't do it. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, what, where do I want to bring up? So I'm focusing most on lats and arms, which means that those are going up and my lats are going to creep just above 20 sets per week. So it's a big body part. I can, you can hit your lats from different pulling movement patterns. I can hit them multiple times a week. My lats can handle a lot without getting super fatigued. So I'm going to have to increase the frequency, but that meant I had to lower my volume on my chest, lower my volume on my shoulders because I want to avoid injury and the total fatigue that happens if everything is way up there. But if you just look at paper and start writing numbers and you don't have the experience of programming or knowing how long things take or how like the crossover effect of muscle groups and stuff, I think that's where it starts getting into like a lurky territory and it becomes difficult, you know, but, but I would agree. I think that specialization and periodizing volume, um, and Mike is telling those guys do a lot with the periodized volume, but it's mainly through like RIR. I personally don't like going that far because I, you start with like two sets RIR, like two sets with like a low RIR or whatever. And I understand mm -hmm. the point of it, but the contrast between week one and week eight or whenever that block starts is so dramatically different that you end up going from training once a day for like 45 minutes to training twice a day for an hour each or something. And it's just like, I got to build a routine. I think most people are like that. So, um, I agree. I think that that's where a lot of it is heading. And I think people will start going that route. Um, the last part of this that I wanted to bring up is that something that I thought was really interesting for a long time. One of the reasons why people periodize their training for 
bodybuilding or hypertrophy or body composition changes um, was to hit different muscle fiber types. Like it was really like, you know, we do heavy lower up training to hit the fast twitch and then high rep bodybuilding stuff to slow twitch. Um, but I believe there's research that shows you can do like really lightweight. You could do like 20 pound dumbbells. And if you reach failure, you're going to be hitting those fast twitch fibers just as you would from the other one. So now it's kind of like, do we even need to do that? Because outside of the actual neurological aspect of building strength, we're going to hit all the fiber types as long as we're training hard enough. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so that's a great point. Like when we recruit muscle fibers, we go from a low to high threshold. So those like type one slow twitch get recruited first. And then when they're over like burdened, you start recruiting your type two. Now, when you go to failure, you're pretty much recruiting everything, right? Like we've done studies where we've done like a 10 RM leg extension and we measure neural output to see like, are you using all of your muscle, right? So 10 RM and then we shock the thigh to put more neural output and it doesn't really change. Like there's no benefit of like doing more than you, than you need. If that, if that makes sense, kind of, it's a long way of saying, yes, you're, you're correct. I think I'm getting the weeds a little too much, but yes, you are recruiting all of your fibers if you're going to failure. Um, so to wrap this up then, you kind of already mentioned it, but I just want you to say it again so people listen, because they're always going to yeah. be like, okay, well, now what do I do? Um, how do you prefer for yourself and for, your, for like clients you would work with in the past? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would usually use a linear periodization for the main lifts, right? And I would do a day of moderate reps. We'll call it 10 to 12, 8 to 12 for all the muscle groups. And I would do a day of 15 to 20 reps per muscle group. Sets are about the same. Um, so you have that kind of like lower end, the, the traditional hypertrophy range, but then you also have that upper, what uh, Schoenfeld calls the metabolite range. Um, so you have both those within the same week, and then you have your linear for your big lifts. Love it. That's uh, very similar to me. Um, I will do linear on the compounds. Um, if I look at my own training and like the people who I'm, I write custom programming for that are focused on building muscle or body composition changes in general, typically the same, I would say like 80% at least of my, of the training is like in the eight to 15 rep range. And I, we just stay there. We try to push close to failure, but not to failure on most things. Um, different discussion, but I've actually been pushing a lot of people to do, uh, like last set to failure for like multiple weeks in a row when they start with me. And the feedback has been really good because everybody is, nobody's gotten hurt. Everybody is recovering fine, but every single person goes, damn, I had more than I thought. I was like, yeah, that's why we're doing it. We're not actually going to program like this forever. We're doing this to show you, you know, how to actually gauge things, um, even the advanced people. So, um, but in that eight to 15 rep range, and then I would say like, I usually choose for me personally, I choose like a few lifts that I know like are safe and I just generally want to get stronger with. And those ones I will go like no less than five reps, but I'll stay in that like five to 10 range and do the linear progression with them. Um, and then uh, I'll pick the the ones that, again, low injury risk for me to go 20 to 30 rep range, and I'll do those too. So that's like 10 to 20% of my training, and the rest is that 8 to 15. Um, and that's a good point too to just throw out there. Like remember, everybody listening, it's it's very exercise specific. So I would never recommend like somebody is training in the like 5 to 7 rep range for a, 
a bicep curl. I mean, you could, but what's the point? You're probably going to hurt your elbows. Don't do it. Yeah, there's no, there's really no point. So, um, being very specific with which exercises you don't do what with um, is really, really important, you know. Um, and everybody's different too. Like some people do great with high rep squats, some people don't. Um, vice versa. Like I do really well with like eight to twelve rep barbell squats, but if I start lifting below six reps, five reps, I always end up hurting my back. So um, now there's a whole host of things that could be causing that. But the point is, is just know your rep ranges, right? Um, cool. Okay. So uh, the next one is exercise variation. Uh, and, and really like the question I always get is what's best? Like, you know, how often should we change up exercises? Like the general question, but the way I'm framing it to you is, you know, is there any research to support a certain amount of frequency, uh, or variety of change? And the reason is because, you know, there's a lot that says, well, to progressively overload, we have to keep the same exercises, but then there's like the novelty stimulus, which helps, you know, um, and muscle damage may or may not cause muscle growth, but it's definitely like correlated with it, right? Because a lot of times the things that we need to do to build muscle end up causing damage and new exercise is one of those things. So um, it's something I've always been curious about and something I've been kind of thinking lately is like there's like a spectrum and, you know, we have like the beginner and then the advanced lifter and the more advanced you get, the more rights you have to vary your exercises more frequently because the learning curve in order to uh, create a maximal stimulus with that exercise is going to happen way quicker, right? Like if you give me a new exercise today and I've done it a million times over the last decade, I'm probably going to be able to fire my muscles pretty quickly doing it and know how much to lift. Whereas a newbie's like, how much do I lift? How do I lock down the movement, my technique? How do I fire the muscles? Like it takes a few weeks just to get used to it. So, um, but is there any research like to support or change the way you think about exercise variation? So there was a recent study and I'm trying to remember, but it, from what I recall, they did like a, like a four week, everybody did the same thing. Then the next four weeks, like one group switched exercises and one group didn't. Um, and I don't think they found any differences um, when they were doing like intermediate people. So I think there's a, there, like you mentioned, there's a spectrum. Um, I, I think there is a learning curve for like newer people. Uh, but it's really hard as you get into that intermediate phase because I struggled a lot with this, um, especially in, probably in the past five or six years, where it's like, I need to see progress on a lift before I change it. Because if I don't, then did I really like put enough time in mm. to, to grow muscle, right? To give that stimulus. Um, so, and, and then there's also like, well, it kind of depends on the muscle, right? Because a barbell curl and a dumbbell curl aren't that different. Um, like the range of motion is slightly different, but that's about it. So, so like switching between those two is probably not a big deal. Um, versus like switching the handle on your lat pull down from like a wide grip to like a close grip. That's a, that's a bigger difference there. Um, so there's, there's no definitive research that says you need to do certain, certain exercise for a certain period of length, then you can switch it. Um, I've found that most people have exercises they really enjoy. And as long as they're not um, causing overuse injuries, that's probably the biggest thing I see. Whereas like, I really love dumbbell curls. So I've been doing them for six months straight and now my elbow hurts. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, six months, that's great. Um, 
maybe let's try like a seated dumbbell curl or like a, a machine curl. How about something a little more like easy? Um, so there is, there is some, some play there, but I would say if you do an exercise variation and you don't see any change, you probably should not switch the exercise yet. Follow-up question to that. If you've been doing it, is it safe to say to change it once you stop seeing change as well? Because I think people can maybe switch it too soon because they haven't started really accumulating progress with it. But there's also times where people are like, man, I've been doing this and like my progress stopped four weeks ago and I just don't know what I'm doing wrong. It's like, well, maybe you're just doing the wrong exercise now. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's where you take and, and you maybe – change one of the exercises per week. So if you're doing dumbbell curls twice per week, um, you would change one of them to like a machine curl uh, and see if that can change or maybe like your dumbbell curls helping your machine curl. And, and now that you go back to it because you haven't done it in two months or three months, you can do more and you're like, oh, there's some nice transition there, some, some nice crossover. Um, so that, that really you have to pay attention to that stuff. Like you have to be tracking your workouts. You have to be tracking your sets and your reps. And you have to know, like, am I doing this to the same RPE? Um, are other things changing? So it's, it's hard to really give a great answer. Um, but I, I usually switch exercises. I'm probably like a little bit longer than most people. Every probably three months, four months, maybe three to four months, somewhere in there. Cause I'll switch something out. Is it safe to say that, um, this is what I've kind of come to the conclusion with, not really based on my own training, but just what I've listened to and what I've read on and, and really just like, uh, the research around it. Not that I've literally read the research, but obviously I listen to people who interpret research really well. Um, and it seems as if, strength and hypertrophy kind of have like, like you have more leeway to switch things more often with hypertrophy as long as you can create sufficient tension in the muscle and still hit the volume versus, um, strength, which is more skill-based. You would probably want to keep it around longer to build the strength. Yeah. Strength is very specific. Like the, there's a saying strength is specific. That's just it. Like yeah. you want to get, get a deadlift, you deadlift. Right. The thing, the caveat I would say is like, anybody who's doing strength doesn't like they don't have like a five rep max for their curl going back to that example so you might have a strength goal for your pull-ups or your deadlift or your bench press and if the push down or the barbell curl is helping any of those goals you're still doing those for hypertrophy because the hypertrophy of those muscles in those accessory exercises is going to help the strength of the compounds and therefore you can change those but not the compound would that be safe to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the correlation between strength and hypertrophy is about like 70%, which you look at some power lectures, you're like, nah, that doesn't make any sense. And some people are special, but as you get stronger, to continue getting stronger, you will need more muscle. Um, so kind of keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. um, the, the other caveat that I think about too, and, and I didn't think about this before asking the question, but once you said, you're doing dumbbell curls on one day, machine curls on another day. Then we get into the, the, you know, this question changes when your frequency goes up too. So if somebody's training every movement pattern once a week because their frequency is low or they can't get in the gym very often, um, they, the question's easier to answer. But then we start doing like, okay, well, I have two upper body days or I have two days where I hit my arms or whatever it may be. 
Well, now we have two separate questions, right? Free, like the variety throughout the week, which I would say there's, there's definitely a benefit to instead of doing seated supinated grip dumbbell curls on Monday and on Thursday, doing seated supinate, supinated curls on Monday and hammer curls with the rope on a cable on Thursday, right? Different loading pattern, different grip, um, maybe different rep range going back to the last question. Um, and then now it's like, okay, do we change both of them after X amount of weeks or do we change one of them or how do we cycle those? Yeah. So I would change, I generally change one exercise per muscle group at a time. And I don't love to change like multiple within the same week. Like, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to switch chest back and arms, right. I probably won't change all four of those exercises in the same week, unless I'm doing like an intro week. And then I might think about it. Um, Cause that's a good way to kind of transition. Um, but otherwise I'm constantly kind of in this rotation of different exercises across the span. And now I'm saying, okay, I stagnated with this exercise. Let me see if I can switch it for 12 weeks, keep most of the stuff the same. Uh, maybe, you know, you do something for your upper body, something for your lower body. Um, to really tease out like what's working and what's not working. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very, you can make it extremely scientific and that can be like a method and you can also get similar results, which is ridiculous and kind of just feel it out. Right. Like the difference we're talking about is less than 5%. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and just insane. yeah. And the, that was kind of the next thing I was going to get to is like the mental side of it because I've actually never heard of anybody doing it that way, to be honest with you. And I actually like that. Like typically once a block is done, I will change out multiple exercises. Um, and when you started saying that you'll just take out one per week, like you don't want to change multiple. My first thought was like, I think the benefit of changing a lot, like, okay, it's a new block. We're changing this curl from a dumbbell to a barbell, this cable curl from this handle to this handle, this row to this thing. Like we change a bunch of them. It's the, the mental stimulus of like just change novelty. It's like, okay, it's exciting. It's different. And people need that. But then when you said that, I'm like, well, if, if you're doing it that way, and if you think about somebody who's training anywhere between four to six days a week, you might be changing one or two exercises a week over time constantly. And then it's like, actually yeah. that might even be better for the mental stimulus. And if we're looking at like that allows you to keep what's actually working, that might be a really good idea, you know? So um, I actually really like that. And I, I tend to do something kind of in between the two for my own training because it's very intuitive, like at this point where, you know, my compounds I usually keep, like right now my squat compound is a safety bar, but I, like heels are elevated and I'm holding onto the squat rack. It just feels good and I can like, I almost feel like I'm doing like a hack squat or a machine the way I have it set up and I don't have those tools here. So I have a lot of fun with it and I can see a lot of progression. So I'll probably stick with that for, a minimum of six weeks, if not longer, and just try to get slowly stronger in that like five to 10 rep range area. Right. But every two to three weeks, I'm changing out my face pull variation or my pull down variation or my, um, chest fly handles or something like smaller. And I will, every two to three weeks I decide, I'm like, okay, this week I'm changing out all of them. And then I keep the compounds. Um, and I usually do that based off intuition. I think of like, okay, some of these are starting to get stale. I'll just swap them all out. But I kind of like the way you approach that. I might kind of switch it up and go, you know what? Only these five are getting stale. I'm going to keep these 10 and only change out a few. Because at the end of the day, we should milk out progress for as long as we can. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and I've gotten to the point where I just like, there's certain exercises that I will always love that I've been doing mm -hmm. every week 
for a year and they don't mess with me and like like me machine bicep curls are a great example mm-hmm. um like i can do it high rep i can do it moderate rep doesn't matter easy to recover from i feel it like you, you get the mind muscle connection you get the the pump the like everything's there for me so i'm like why would i and and there's minimal progress right but it it feels really good and it makes me feel like a bodybuilder yeah um so it's something that i'll probably just never take out i'm like no, it's worth it for me yeah. mentally to have that. Stiff leg RDLs, dumbbell bench press, and usually a straight bar cable curl. Those three, like, they literally never leave my program ever because they're just, they feel great. And I would even say this too now that there is more research showing um, different types of muscle uh, growth. Uh, speaking more towards like the metabolic side, I think metabolite accumulation, even like the, the tie in with lactate and everything. Um, because for a while, I remember this question being asked and me hearing it from people I really respect and even me saying it to people when they ask, it's like, how do I know I'm building muscle? A lot of times as a natural lifter, you go, well, like progressive overload. Like even if it is the eighth or 10th rate rep range, like that's really your only key indicator. But now that we know that, it's like, well, if you're still getting crazy pumps, even if the weight's not going up, I mean, that's, that is literally a, a signal for growth. So keep it going. Um, but I think ultimately this is why I really respect people like you and people people who are like actually doing research and interpreting research, but who also actually train and who have coached people. Because I think programming really is just as much an art as it is a science. And we can look at the science, but once you start working with real people and then going to the gym and doing it yourself, things kind of have to be played with because how you manipulate them on paper is ultimately how you're going to like last in the long run to get the result that you're even trying to be scientific for in the first place yeah yeah it's like science scientists give guidelines like you should train your muscles twice a week you should be somewhere between 10 and 20 sets per week that's kind of like it i mean there's some nutrition stuff too right but like you have a lot of freedom um and and there's not going to be one big study that comes out and like changes your mind or as a scientist it there's generally not one giant study that's like nope i was wrong because most stuff's kind of like on the fence already so one you know moderate even if it's a like a good study you're like okay maybe i'm leaning a little more this way now whereas before i was like more in the middle Mm -hmm. um so there's not much changes in five years even yeah it's crazy. There's definitely more now than there was five years ago, just because so much more research coming out. But because when yeah. I first started, there was no evidence base wasn't a thing. There wasn't being research wasn't really being done or at least published yet on these kind of things, um, which is actually a perfect transition because this next question yeah. I've been asked a million times of like what I recommend. And um, I try to like lean towards this thought process for people. And I never actually said it this way until um, I was interviewing Lane for the podcast last week. And uh, we were talking about research and I said, you know, like there's not that many people will be honest about this, but I typically don't create content on a research study until I have seen somebody who interprets research better than me already create content on that exact topic, or I've at least texted you, if not both, right? Because I think that I can read a study and then I hear your thoughts on it and I'm like, oh shit, I read that wrong or that went over my head or like some of the formulas and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And there's nothing wrong with me saying that, but people are afraid to admit that. Like 
it's very fucking hard to read research, like actually read it, which there's just so much research review and material at our disposal now that nobody has an excuse not to go the safer route as like a trainer or a nutrition coach. But the question is like, how, how do you think newer coaches or just people who are very serious about lifting and dieting and such um, go about learning from research without getting overwhelmed or just straight up misinterpreting the literature? So I think having a variety of sources helps. So you kind of mentioned like there are some people who are very knowledgeable and what I've found just like being in the evidence-based field for, you know, a while is if it's, if somebody's like really fanatical and extreme, like you should probably be like super sus, be like, I don't know, like, um, what's it like the carnivore diet? That sounds pretty extreme. I don't know if that's true. You Never eat like, vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's a red flag. I'm like, why would you, why would you do that? Okay. Um, but finding a couple of people who interpret science, generally they will nowadays have PhDs. They will have completed studies. They will be good at communicating. Like that's number one, right? Like I can be super smart, but if I can't break something down for you, it doesn't matter. Um, and then, so that's verbal for communication, like a podcast or, and it's writing, or if it's Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is, they have to be good at communicating it. Um, but also there's some level of like doing it for long enough to understand how scientists write around gaping holes in studies, right? Most, most PhD students can't do that. Most postdocs struggle with it. Um, it's just like an experience, just like being in the gym right? Like you can go in the gym and be totally fine with probably any exercise um, versus someone who's kind of like newer and maybe hesitant about that stiff leg RDL. They're like, I don't know. I've never really done that much. Maybe they've done it once. So, so it's, it's similar in that there's a training to understand research and being a newer coach, there's a lot to learn, right? So you find your sources, a couple of different ones, compare them, like do Q and A's, submit the same question to like four people and say, I don't know, are they all similar? How do they compare? What's the nuance there? Is it reference? Like some of the stuff we talk about, is it, you know, those scientific guidelines that people are, are missing or not missing? Like in the blogs that I write, you'll see like the two a day one's a great example where it's like just a link, like this is what you should be within your guidelines. Like we've written about it. We've talked about it inside those guidelines. Now let's talk about two a days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there should be some linkage because research builds over time. Um, but I, as a new coach, like, I don't know that you need to be able to research, read research nowadays, unless you want to be a content creator. Um, and even then, like, I don't actually, there's plenty of stuff to do um, otherwise too. So I, I don't know. I, like, it's kind of cool that coaches want to read research, but I'm like, but is it worth your time? I don't know. I'd say no, personally. I mean, I think that, Yeah. I think I could read, I could read uh, five research review articles before I could get through one full research paper, not just the abstract, but the full paper, look through all the graphs, look through the cited sources, look who funded the study, look through all the things. Because, you know, before there was all these different research reviews, I really was like researching how to read research and really diving through and trying to understand all these different things. And it takes time, Um, you know, especially when you don't have a PhD because you didn't go to school and learn that stuff in school. So you have to try to figure it out yourself, which is hard. Um, But like you said, 
you don't necessarily need to, especially if you go through, if you spend a lot of time and you realize this study is not going to apply to any of my clientele whatsoever, you just wasted a lot of time. Whereas a research review will tell you at the very beginning, keep takeaways, boom, boom, boom. And then I can audit. This doesn't, isn't worth my time. I can move on. Or there's some times where I'll read research reviews because I'm generally interested. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to apply to me, but it's fucking cool and I want to read it. So, but I think that that is important. I believe it is. I think it's important to understand or not even understand, um, to know what research says around the topics that you are coaching on. I don't think it's important to be able to read research unless you want to go into a profession where that's what you do. If you want to be a content creator who interprets research, totally different. Um, if you want to do research, totally different. Um, like your job, you have to, like you literally have to mm-hmm. for every role you play in the different companies you play them for. Um, whereas for me, like I would much rather go to, I mean, I'm subscribed to like Lane just came out with his, um, I'll be subscribed to, to Bill Campbell's once his comes out. Um, I was fortunate enough to actually do a review for him. Um, which for those listening, I didn't review the research. He reviews the research and then he asks two coaches uh, like what their opinion is or how they apply it, which is really cool. So the, I don't know who else is on the, the episode or the, um, it's not an episode. What would that even be called? Issue that I'm on. Uh, I think the first issue he's releasing is with Lauren Conlin and Paul Ravella and Ravella, and then it's me and somebody else. I don't know. Um, I didn't ask, but uh, it was uh, there was a study on keto for body composition change, and then volume increases for program design. And it was kind of like he sends it to me, and it's really cool. He's like, "Here's here's the research. Here's how I interpreted it." what do you think about my interpretation and how have you used either keto or volume into your, your coaching? And I was able to like dive into it and then he reviews it and edits it and um, really cool. But um, to me, that's super helpful, you know, cause even I remember when the Matador study came out, that was really big in the coaching space. Cause it was like, Oh, these diet breaks are magical. And I remember reading it and missing on so many things that were fundamental in regards to the results and how they actually apply to my clients. And I took it at face value of like, this is it. This is the thing. This is what you do. And then I started hearing these research reviewers coming out and talking about what they saw wrong with it, how it changes the results. If you factor in these things, if you account for this, it might manipulate this, who the participants actually were. And you start going, Oh shit. Like that actually completely changes it. You know? So, um, I agree with you completely. I'm glad that you had that answer versus, because for those listening, we didn't talk about what the answer would be um, for the podcast, but I'm glad that you didn't come out and say, like, I think everybody should spend the time to learn this, you know, how to do this. But I think, no, like for people listening, like you don't have to know how to read it, but you, sh- I think if you want to be a coach, especially, I think you should invest time and money into learning from those who interpret research. I think that's super valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's much like the first couple of body competition, bodybuilding competitions I did. I went to a coach who like was the person for posing and like taking the, the non-scientific aspect. Cause I knew all the science. I was like, well, I know this stuff. I need a coach who like gets it and has experience and mm-hmm. has dealt with hundreds of clients and that can help me tweak my, and, and like the little things that I don't know about. So it's not that much different than that. Or if maybe like I wanted to get into weightlifting, right? Like, I can weightlift, but uh, I'm not like an all pro Olympic weightlifter. So I'm going to hire a coach who does that, that thing. And they're not, they may or may not be science-based, probably not. Um, And then I'm going to use their expertise. So it's, it's not that different, like 
science-based people do the same thing. It's mm-hmm. like, we want a skill, we go to a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, if you look at most research reviewers, I mean, you have a lot of experience with competing and coaching. If you look at the guys at Mass, if you look at Alan Aragon, if you look at the people who write for Weightology, um, obviously Lane and the couple people that write for him, they all have experience with people. And so they'll say in the interpretation sometimes, and I know you will too, it's like, here's what it says, but here's why it doesn't really matter, you know? And sometimes it's disappointing because you're like, damn it, like, this would be really cool if it mattered. And you're like, yeah, but if you really think about the practicality of this, eh, it's not a big deal, you know? So, um, yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. I think that in general, um, people, I think you should seek information um, from the people who went to school to learn how to do the research and interpret it properly. And then you take that interpretation and you factor in your individual experience and clients. And then you come out with the result. So Um, definitely. um, Okay. Slow. uh, Next question. Large uh, verse. I I completely butchered this. I said large, slow, and moderate. That doesn't make sense. Um, (laughs) So large, uh, moderate, or small calorie deficits, essentially. So are we going like, I didn't want to say, because I've had two questions and it's kind of like, what's the best approach? Should I like diet fast or diet slow, right? Conservative. So, but I, I thought about, rewording it in a different way um, because I've been talking about a specific route to take lately. I'm not going to say it before you give your answer um, just to be authentic. If, if you think I'm wrong, that I think it'll make a good conversation, but uh, essentially like at the beginning of a diet, like do you think it is better to approach it with more of a large caloric deficit, which would, you know, insinuate like we're going a little bit faster with things um, or a small calorie deficit, which would insinuate a little bit uh, slower progress obviously at the beginning but the main thing i'm looking at is like calorie deficit like big or small you know and obviously you can define that in your own words what those things are yeah so um when you go into a diet in a deficit you want to make sure you're actually in a deficit right so in my head a large calorie deficit is like five six hundred calories i mean you could push 750 that might be a lot but a small one's gonna be like 250 100 to 250 as you have those two spectrums. Um, and so the problem with going with the small, unless you're really experienced and have been doing it a long time, or maybe like in the middle of a diet, sure. But at the beginning, you, you really have to make sure you're in deficit. If it's small, a lot of times you can spend two or three weeks just trying to figure out like, hey, did I lose weight? Did I not lose weight? You know, is it water fluctuations? Is it glycogen? Uh, am I stressed? Um, so I would lean towards like a larger deficit to begin with and then adjusting from there. So if I start with 500 calories, I'll just say, and I assume I'm going to lose about a pound a week. Right. And I lose like two pounds for two or three weeks in a row. Then I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, that's weird. I'm going to lower it or, 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 you know, increase my calories essentially. And maybe I move more towards the, the slow aspect. Um, but again, I've seen a lot of people spin their wheels and you're not going to necessarily lose muscle until you're really lean already. So like the more lean you get, the slower you should lose muscle, uh, fat or weight. Right. Um, but if you're sitting at like 20%, which is like most people, um, like you can, you can get a good deficit going, get some momentum, feel good about it. Like as long as your hunger is not out of control, and then modify it to a moderate or, or, or a slow, or if like you think you can get 10 pounds off in six weeks and you can be in and out of it, like 
go for it. So as long as you're still training and, and doing all the other stuff, like that's probably where I would lean nowadays. Spot on with my answer too, which is music okay. to my ears. But um, I think that, you know, I usually talk in percentages, um, not necessarily because you can't just go 500 calories, but just because people, it's just easier for them to conceptualize, I think. So like uh, the thing that I've been trying to like pose as an idea for people is that if we look at research, a lot of times fat loss research, when they put people through a diet and people will look at these and they're like, whether it's the, you know, Bill Campbell did the five days on, two days off, or it's the bad door, or it's just generally like a fat loss research study and they're looking at muscle maintenance, whatever. People just hear deficit and 12 weeks deficit and five days on, two days off. They don't look at the percentage of deficit. And for people listening, the the five days on, two days off study was a 35% deficit during the week and then two days at maintenance. And then the group that wasn't doing refeeds every week was 25%. So even like the smaller deficit was a 25% deficit, right? So if you're consuming 2000 calories, that's 500 calories, right? And that's the lower end of the spectrum here. The Matador study was 33%, like, and you can, the list goes on. So I think that what you said is exactly what I believe, but I started really realizing this from two things. One, I would make a small deficit because I feared somebody's adherence. And then what would happen is they would be spinning their wheels, like you said, and they still get diet fatigue, especially psychologically, because they're in a deficit. It's just not really getting out of that maintenance range. They're not losing any weight. Now they're just frustrated, which is going to make their adherence worse anyway. Um, They'd probably have a better adherence if the diet was hard, but it actually fucking worked. Uh, and then I started looking at this research and realizing, like, holy shit, they're taking big chunks out. Now, a lot of times, if you look at the diets that do adjust along the way as well, they're just adjusting for the weight lost, which would be, you know, if you started at 30%, then they had to adjust for the weight loss. They maybe bump another 25 to 5%, maybe 5 to 10% at most. Small adjustments. So it's kind of lining up with exactly what you said. But people, I think, tend to start with the 5 to 10% you know, and then they're confused as why does it work? Whereas I'm with you. I always make a big slash at the beginning and then small throughout the diet when we need to adjust. Yeah. Yeah. It's much easier to tell a client, Hey, you're losing weight a little faster than we want you to. Um, so we're going to increase your calories by like, uh, 200, you know, people, when people hear that, they're like, yeah, I love dieting. (laughs) Right. Um, there, there is some aspect of dieting where like, ultimately you should be hungry. Like it's not fun. It's not something you want to do forever. And, and sometimes when you get into that slow deficit, if you're not like a physique athlete and really experienced in it, um, it can just kind of like wear on you, like you're saying. Um, so I think the last cut I did, I think it was six weeks and I cut probably about 20, 25% off and increased my walking a little bit so a little activity a little bit of that mm-hmm. so i i think it's i feel semi-hypocritical saying what i just said only because it's not what i did this time and i had a really successful cut but i want to like you know mention this because i think it's a good insight for people and i would like to get your thoughts um two things number one i think that you know and i did this i i, I had jackson take me through the cut but he he calls it something else i think he called it a feeder uh, feeder week or something like that. We call it a primer phase because it's not always a week. It's sometimes it's longer, but, um, I always like, not always, but when I get a client, especially if I don't think they're like really, really dialed in, we spend a little bit of time closer to what I think their maintenance is, which 
if they're overeating and that's why they're gaining weight or overweight, it's actually going to put them in a deficit anyway, but it doesn't feel like crazy deficit. But nonetheless, all I'm trying to do is limit variables and create consistency. When you do that, you can get away with a smaller deficit afterwards because you've eliminated things that would cause too much variety or variables, right? So like my example, uh, we did a feeder week and then went right into a deficit, but we, it was a pretty small deficit at first, but it worked really well. We actually didn't pull a lot of calories and I didn't really like get kind of miserable until the last like three weeks, probably the last three and a half weeks of the diet. But it's because I was already really dialed in. I mean, this is what I do for a living. So I say that to people because um, I think the more consistent you are with tracking with like your meals, like I eat the same shit every day. Everything is so calculated. When I go into a diet, I can get away with not being aggressive at the front end because everything is so like the, the range narrows down, right? I'm so much more on point that any type of adjustment gets me out of that way easier. And I think that's a good point to make. And, and part of the reason why for everyday people, you usually have to do a bigger deficit because it, it's not normal to be as regimented as somebody like me, because again, it's what I do for a living and we don't expect people to be that regimen. Um, but just, I guess your thoughts on that, like in general, I think people getting away with a smaller deficit works better when they're more dialed in because there's less variables that can throw things off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of like, we have different levels of clients that, that I think sometimes when you hear people talk about this, they're thinking about it in their head, right? Mm-hmm. Cause like, if you're taking a new client, that's never really tracked or doesn't track well, or like needs that primer phase to really figure out how to meal prep and how to manage their diet with their life. And, or versus, so that person versus like the person who's been, you know, tracking for a decade and can lose weight fairly easily. And is just choosing to, to get leaner, right. For a photo shoot or for a competition mm-hmm. for, for whatever, because it's summer. Um, and then chooses later to gain weight because they want to gain weight, gain muscle, right? Those are two completely different people. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind when you're thinking about your clients. Like they're not all on the same level we are, but some of them are. So you got to, you know, just know who you're dealing with. Yeah, 100%. Um, dope. I love that. Yeah, I think the there was, a, I don't know how recent the study was. Jackson is the one that actually posted about it, but I his his detail on it was really good. I didn't go look up the PubMed thing because... I trust him, but, um, the, uh, it was kind of like comparing two groups. One was, one was fast, one was slow, but they, they looked at the weight loss and then they looked at after the fact and like during the studies, there was no difference really. Like like essentially the one group started out way faster and then tapered off. And then the other group just was slow and steady the whole time. And it was like basically the exact same thing, except the group that went faster actually lost a little bit more lean tissue on the front end, which we know isn't all muscle, but nonetheless, they lost more lean tissue. Um, but when they did the follow-up, they had regained that tissue and stayed, uh, had lower body fat levels than the other group because the other group put on a little bit of fat mass after the fact, but they didn't regain the lean tissue because they never lost the lean tissue. So then you kind of wonder, mm-hmm. like, well, shit, maybe, like, you could look at that study multiple ways and probably go, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's more of a preference. Or you could say like, maybe it is better to just get it over with and don't worry about muscle loss because even if you do lose some lean mass, it's going to replenish muscle memory after the fact. Um, and what are you going to be more motivated by doing? You know, and I think that's something that people forget about a lot too. They look so much at the physiology of it, but it's like, there are certain people who, if you don't get them results really quickly, and this is just my coaching side speaking, if you don't get them results relatively quickly, they will be frustrated and they will give up. They're just not like, you have to give them something to show for or else they're going to feel like they're wasting their time. And that's a really, really important factor here. They're not in a study where we can control everything and they're going to continue doing it whether they get results or not. 
you know? Yeah. Funny enough, those people usually drop out of studies too. People hate being in the control group. I mean, you have to have it, but you know. That's another thing that people who don't do research don't think about. Like, what is the dropout rate? And is there a ratio of the dropout rate? Like, more people in this group dropped out for this group. Because a lot of us look at the, the results and we go, oh, this many people at the end of it showed this result. But if you knew that the people in this group, half of them dropped out and only like 10% dropped out of this group, that would change the way you interpret it, you know? Um, yeah. So, see you guys. There's there's reason for this. Um, all right. Do you, have, uh, do you have time for one more? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, overview. I mean, we just wrote a blog, so we'll link that in the description. Uh, Brandon put together a blog on two days, um, and and I put two days for body composition on here. But like in the blog, he covers CrossFit, endurance, strength, bodybuilding, like everything. So no matter what your goal is, there's going to be an answer in there for whether or not two days would be smart for you. But like after digging into the research, writing the article and stuff, I just want to know your your general thoughts. Like, what were your consensus of like when you think it might actually be appropriate and when it wouldn't be? So I, I'm not going to lie. I was really disappointed when I like read all these studies because this has been on my list for a long time. Like it's been on our list of like topics and I was like, okay, there's going to be some really cool stuff. Like it's going to show me yes or no. And for all these different aspects. And I, so I got into the literature and of course there's, there's not much there. Um, so for hypertrophy, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, now the caveat to that is if you're taking the same amount of volume and splitting it up into two sessions, right? You can probably do that volume better at each session slightly, but there's no study that really shows that. Um, so we kind of have a lack of scientific evidence. Now, if you're doing two sessions and it allows you to do more volume, that's probably beneficial depending on your periodization phase like we talked about earlier. Um, but there's, there's like no study that does that either. Um, so for hypertrophy, right now, the science says two days probably won't help. Like you're not gonna see a big benefit, not a lot going on um, for strength and wrap like power into this a little bit because those do show a slight benefit um, for strength and that's splitting like say you went and did your your deadlift in the morning and for some reason you're squatting deadlift on the same day and you're squatting in the evening right that would be a good example of you could probably get like a two to five percent benefit ish um, from splitting your strength work up. And so if I'm a power lifter, I'm like, okay, I might try that occasionally. Um, but again, there's not a lot of research on that either. Um, for endurance training there, there's this concept of, of training low and competing high. So the idea is you do two workouts, one to like glycogen deplete you, and then you trained depleted. And this is supposed to induce some like mitochondrial adaptations and some physiological adaptations that will help you because your like body is like suffering and you're adapting to more suffer. Um, but those studies haven't really panned out either. There's only like two or three. Um, so in the running world, Sometimes you just got to do a lot of miles 
or like if you're a triathlete and you want to swim and run, like splitting those up into two different sessions or two days might make sense, but there's no hard and fast evidence that says, yes, split your stuff up and you'll do better in the endurance world. Um, so last, I think, but not least, because we have, I think we have, you know, the bit of people who do CrossFit and like cross training is what I kind of consider myself doing nowadays, um, where, you know, you, you need the endurance, the speed, the strength, the size, you kind of need it all. Um, and so there's, there's no, there's no real studies. The closest we have to this is the concurrent training studies. And these say split things up by at least six hours, but that's two sessions in a day, right? So you can do your two sessions, concurrent training, CrossFit S things, and probably see, um, that you can improve both of them for a longer period of time. Um, but there's nothing to say that will help you to better over the long term. Although I think I think it would. There's just not like a study that says that. Because yeah. um, again, that quality aspect of like if you're doing a wad in the morning because that's your skill, right? But then you know that you don't really run a lot in your wad, so you go do a a five k in the evening. Like that's probably going to benefit you. I don't know how well you recover, but that's another component. When if you look at like, you know, I've done nutrition for some pretty high level crossfitters and just studying the space enough to know what I'm doing. Um, usually the best crossfitters split it up into two days. Plain and simple. Especially if we think of it, and you wrote a little bit about this, like the interference effect, right? If you're slapping on a pretty heavy aerobic session at the tail end of a heavy strength session and you're in the gym for three hours because of it, probably not the best results on either, you know, um, or at least the one that goes first is going to get decent results. Um, but even then I would even say like, this is just hypothetical, the psychological aspect of knowing that you're still going to have to do an hour of aerobic training after this, like that is daunting. And we'll probably, you know, you'll purposely not go as hard and get as great of results because you're like, I got to save some juice, you know? Um, and at the end of the day, the best CrossFitters, that's what they do. They do their like, aerobic uh, a lot of the people i know do their aerobic stuff earlier in the day and then they do their strength training based stuff later in the day um or their skill work if it's like more like uh body weight muscle up stuff like that or olympic lifting um the thing that i kind of added at the end um of the blog at, at the very end of the blog there's like brandon's it's like the researcher's conclusion you have your conclusion then i wrote like a couple things of like my thought process after reading it and just knowing what i know um, and this is kind of based on, I heard Eric Helms, uh, I, I don't know if it was mass. I think it was on his podcast, uh, with Omar Esau, but they were talking about, uh, like, um, what's it called? Uh, two days for bodybuilding. And there's, there was a specific study that he was talking about and it sounded like the study design was just horrible. Cause it was like, if you're an actual coach and you look at how they did it, nobody would do that. Like this, the researchers were basically saying, it was clearly better for hypertrophy to do two days, but then you look at like, oh, well, this group did, you know, five sets in the morning, five sets at night, and then this group did 10 straight sets of bench press to failure. It's like, well, of course, they're going to go, like, I don't know if it was actually bench press, it might have been a different exercise, but yeah, yeah. point being is like the last half of those sets are going to be dog shit because you're so gassed, whereas somebody takes eight hours between, they can take a nap, get some food, of course they're going to do better. 
Um, and so like my conclusion was kind of like just seeing what the people that I have seen use it, both enhanced and natural. Um, I think it boils down to maybe being something that could be beneficial if you're extremely advanced and you're reaching kind of like what we talked about at the beginning where you reach that point in your experience where you know you got to go to pretty high volume levels and it's almost like unpractical to do it all in one session. So you just have to like, I'm going to go back to the gym later and finish my arms or like, you know what I mean? Like you do your heavy session in the morning and then you go in the afternoon and do biceps and calves. Like you're like little isolation stuff that you can just knock out quickly. Um, it might make sense. You know, there, there's, there's reason to think that it, it could allow you to manage more volume while still having a high amount of recovery. But I think like the point where that actually becomes necessary is like where you're, you're so fucking advanced that it's on another level. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I've been training over a decade. You're you're like, you're like pro. You're like a a pro athlete at that point. Right. Cause I mean, that that's, that's what it takes. The difference there is, is the time, right. Who like practically speaking, who has time to go train for 90 minutes in the morning and then train for an hour in the afternoon or evening. Like that's just a lot of training time. Um, And usually you don't do that unless you're some kind of pro and that ranges, but you're very dedicated to your sport and you're at the elite or at least at your genetic potential, we'll call it. So the the people that I'm thinking of who who actually do this are either pro bodybuilders or very close to pro bodybuilders or they're pro CrossFit athletes or very close to pro CrossFit athletes all of which do online coaching for a living. Therefore, they can make their own schedule. Um, and they usually just train and work. <laughs> like, there's no, like, I'm off. Like, I get off at five and go spend time with my family. Like, that's not a thing if you're training two, twice yeah. a day and working. Yeah. Job. It's just not a thing. So, um, therefore, I will never do two days. Probably not going to happen, you know. I yeah. go on a morning walk. There is, I, I will say, the people who have a home gym, like, I think, if I had like a home gym and I worked at home and I walked out into my gym, I might toy with some like mm-hmm. splitting up of my session across the day. Like that could be kind of fun, but mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't do it very long. I've thought about it because I have the gym here, but at the same time, yeah. I'm so busy throughout the day that like, and I love my work so much that I'm like, I, I as, as curious, I'm not curious enough to disturb my work. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. So, yeah. um, Okay, cool. We're past an hour, so I'm gonna, we'll wrap it up here. Um, dude, that was amazing. It was good to have you back on and answer some questions. Um, so we'll keep doing this, guys. Uh, send in your questions. You can click the link in the description of the podcast uh, here and ask us anything. As always, we appreciate you listening, and we will catch you next time.